1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, a G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: At this point, many Americans know that their government was slow to respond to the coronavirus outbreak, that that stemmed in part from a denial at the very highest levels of the government that there was much of a problem going on. Around the world, we have not just an epidemic and an outbreak, but a political outbreak of denial, where leaders around the world early on in the coronavirus, even this late into the outbreak, have been denying that their country has a problem going on. And taking steps that are probably making the problem worse. This is Worldly, part of the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. What's up, everybody? Hey. We are talking about the coronavirus again. uh, I don't think anyone is surprised by this because it is the story around the world. Wait, what is
2: the coronavirus? (laughs)
0: I've just been working from home like <laughs> usual caveats people uh you may hear some dogs in the background or some shuffling these are our, these are our home podcast studios and as a result things are a little bit janky just like a touch janky so we may
2: or may not have microphones duct taped to their stands oh yeah Maybe. I'm
0: currently holding mine because the tape is not doing so hot it's really uh it's, it things are going well over here <laughs> yeah. is, is what we're saying starting Start anyway, a stand up so, set just grab it all right we we want to talk about this very interesting political arc of the coronavirus. When we were prepping the show yesterday, it was striking to all of us how widespread this problem is of political leadership denying that the coronavirus is likely to be an impending disaster. And that even stretches back to the origins of the outbreak. Right, Jen?
2: Yeah, so, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but the entire reason this outbreak arguably got so bad so quickly and continued to spread, uh, is at the very beginning, the Chinese authorities literally tried to suppress information about this virus and its very existence. So you had that doctor in Wuhan who started noticing in his hospital, in his clinic, that you were getting lots of cases of this weird respiratory disease. And he messaged some of his colleagues at the university And basically, the Chinese authorities swept in and arrested him and told him to stop talking about it. It it may sound like, okay, it's just one guy, right? What does it matter? But those very early days were when this was critical. And if the Chinese government had, arguably, had a different approach and, you know, immediately marshaled resources to send there and said, look, there's something going on. We need to deal with this. This could be a huge outbreak. Potentially, we wouldn't be where we are today.
0: Yeah, I don't even think it's especially arguable that that was the cause of the outbreak, right? It wasn't. It wasn't just uh, Li Wenliang, the doctor that you were talking about in China. There were also several other doctors. I don't remember the exact number now, um, but a number of them posted on social media about there being a novel coronavirus. And while Li was forced to sign a pledge apologizing for spreading false rumors, right? These doctors were just told that if they continue talking, they could be punished with unspecified. Who knows what? So they stopped talking about the coronavirus on social media. And, you know, it wasn't just that, right? It's that at the time it was known the virus was spreading, and we have evidence that the uh, Chinese president, Xi Jinping, was directly involved in the management of coronavirus at this point. Five million people left the area where the outbreak was strongest, Hubei province. Right. And Wuhan, the city. Right. And so five million people were going out of the area at a time when we knew it was super contagious and we knew there was a huge problem. And according to at least one expert I spoke to in the past week, that is that is why we have a global outbreak, because all, all these people traveling all over to different places spread it to other people in other places who traveled there. And hence global pandemic. So it's. While China has done a really, really impressive about-face in terms of its management of it, it's fair to say that the initial Chinese denial is sort of the original sin of the coronavirus pandemic and is why we're all facing such dire straits right now. But of course, China is not the only country who exhibited states of denial, right? So early on in the outbreak, you saw a divergence in behaviors. You had some other countries near China who were very, very fast to respond to the risks, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, all of whom reacted swiftly and effectively to the coronavirus outbreak. But around the same time, other countries were starting to get it, and uh, they didn't react with the same alacrity.
3: Yeah, I mean, what my sort of macro take of this entire situation is that the countries that reacted very quickly with tests and had leaders that recognized the threat early on, they're the ones that are doing way better in terms of curbing the spread and minimizing deaths. And it's the governments that had leaders that, Minimize the threat that didn't think it was a big deal, that would call it a hoax, who also don't necessarily have great healthcare systems uh, or didn't test early, those are the ones that are struggling right now and are seeing the worst outbreaks. In Europe, for example, we're seeing this pretty acutely with Italy. Part of Italy's problem, of course, is that it has a very elderly population. And so, of course, if people get it there, they are going to struggle more. Uh, it was very concentrated. But also, a lot of folks in the government, they did not act quickly enough. Uh, Some Italian leaders were minimizing the threat, thinking it wasn't that big a deal. These were usually from the right-wing populist uh, wing in Italy. And on top of that, there was sort of this belief that it could, because it was very quote-unquote, contained in the North, that it wouldn't necessarily be that big a spread. That is, as quickly if they just kind of stemmed out the first few cases, um, that it would be fine. And that's why it's in part why there wasn't that much testing. And also there was a, a lack of resources. But all this to say is that, you know, Italy being a pretty powerful country, a pretty rich country, this is what happened when they didn't necessarily move quickly enough. You had leaders that were questioning a response, and there were some faulty assumptions. And so this whole sort of notion of this quick acting need that any country requires to stem the crisis. Like, if it happened in Italy, it was likely to happen in a lot of places. And that's sadly
0: what I think we're seeing. Yeah, Italy, it's worth noting, has a first-rate healthcare system. By all accounts, right? It's really top of the line, universal access, strong medical infrastructure. So it's not, it wasn't a matter of Italy being rickety in its health infrastructure in the way that people often portray the Italian state as being incompetent or weak. That's not what was happening here. It's a very, very effective healthcare system that, as far as we can tell, wasn't served well by its political leadership earlier. And one, one of the funnier examples that comes to mind to me, the head of the Democratic Party, which is in government at the current time, Instagrammed a photo in late February when it was clear the outbreak was serious that was something along the lines of, I forget what the exact rhyme scheme was, but it was like a little rhyming thing that said, have a drink for Milan. Or something like that, because he was trying to encourage people to go to bars and keep the economy afloat, when that was the exact opposite of what they needed to be doing at that time. Yet, that was the nature of the response in certain quarters of the Italian political establishment.
3: No, absolutely, and in fact, uh, and as I think people will hear throughout a lot of this episode, is that there has been, I guess, in my mind, I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but there has been a uh, like a kind of split from leaders of Are you prioritizing public health, or are you prioritizing the economy? And that example kind of really drives it home is that there, and again, you will hear this throughout, but leaders are constantly saying like, well, if we do do social distancing and we keep people at home, then the economy doesn't thrive. And wouldn't that be worse, right? We're we're even hearing, should the cure be as bad as the disease or worse than the disease? And this seems to be the kind of one of those main themes we're hearing so far in this early response to the crisis, uh, whether it be in Europe or or some parts of Latin America, or as Jen is probably about to start talking about in the Middle East.
2: Yeah. uh, Great segue. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. We talked about the early denial in Wuhan uh, and in China, and you can basically directly trace a line from Wuhan to the outbreak in Iran. Iran is currently under, you know, major, major crisis, basically begging countries on the international stage and, you know, international health bodies uh, and the U.N. for help, financial help, for sanctions help, because they are struggling with a massive, massive outbreak. And one of the first cases, I think the first case was a businessman who had traveled from Wuhan. A lot of Iranian business people uh, traveled to China and back and forth. And we didn't have a lockdown on Wuhan at the time. And people were coming and going and came to Iran and essentially sparked this outbreak there. And, you know, the first outbreak happened in Qom. It's a Shia religious holy city. It's a place of pilgrimage that, you know, millions of of Shia Muslims go to every year. It's a massive place of pilgrimage. Um, You know, not as big as the Hajj, not as big as Mecca in Saudi Arabia, but really, really big place for, you know, center of religious learning. And so people were going there and getting infected with the virus in Qom. And, the authorities in Iran didn't shut things down. They also didn't even bother to basically tell doctors in Iran that they should start being aware of this thing. And on top of that, you know, this was right after they had had parliamentary elections. Trust in the government was already low in Iran uh, for a lot of various reasons, but in particular right after elections. And the Iranian authorities and they realized that several people in the parliament and several people in government were starting to get infected they prioritized elites over mass quarantines or mass testing and made sure that all these you know parliamentarians got tested which yeah you want the government to make sure that they're healthy and they're you know okay but they prioritized them to the detriment of all these other people who were being tested and who were still moving around and they failed to clamp down so you can now trace a lot of the outbreak across the middle east and and further Um, to come and to people who came from Iran and were traveling there as pilgrims and then went back to their countries. You can see that in Syria. You can see that, I think, in, in Pakistan and several other countries. And so, again, that kind of elite denial and refusal to take this seriously and failure in the early days when it's really critical to stop things and to shut things down basically led to even further spread. It's the same exact kind of thing. And you can see this direct line from China to Iran, and then spreading outward across the Middle East and elsewhere.
0: What's striking to me about the uh, Iran, Italy, China examples is that there aren't obvious commonalities between those governments and those leaderships in the way that you might ordinarily be like, oh, yeah, sure, Like this is something democracies do well or autocracies don't do well. I have a piece going up on the site later today about this sort of democratic authoritarian comparison, and it's clear this denial problem isn't just a feature of either regime type. It's not just democratic leaders who don't want to jeopardize their reelection, which seems to have been the case in the United States and initially in the United Kingdom. Both countries, the U.S. is very well known to most of our listeners at this point, given Trump's global profile— But the UK is another good example of a country where the leadership initially adopted what they called a herd immunity approach, uh, which was basically get everybody sick really fast and then hopefully we'll all – we'll develop some antibodies and then the disease will burn itself out and it'll be fine. They reversed course on this relatively quickly because this is a horrific idea that would have killed an untold number of people. Um, But that was their initial approach and explains why they were slow to impose the now significant national – measures that they're the UK government's currently implementing, but again, they were slow to, and there was already an outbreak there.
2: Yeah, it was only a few days ago that they finally announced this.
0: Right. So you have, you know, three advanced, very wealthy democracies. You have China, which is a middle-income country, but uh, an extremely bureaucratically effective authoritarian state. And you have Iran, which uh, also a middle-income country, but a kind of fractured, difficult-to- Govern, not very effective authoritarian state when it comes to domestic policy. I mean, good at repression, but not very good at delivering good governance. These early denial responses that we've been talking about don't track the normal lines that we use to talk about and delineate differences between governments and world politics. It's a lot more complicated than we might ordinarily think.
3: Yeah, I mean, if there's a through line to me, and it's a theme I'm going to hit a lot in this episode, it's the inclination of the leadership, frankly. Like, not necessarily do they feel authoritarianism is good or democracy is good or whatever. It is how much, how quickly did they realize the threat the coronavirus would pose? How much did they prioritize public health over anything else? And how much did they listen to actual experts on issues like this as opposed to their other political considerations? That seems to be the through line, and that crosses parties that crosses, ideologies that crosses all kinds of things, as every country has their own problems. And we'll, we'll talk about some more, which requires a leader to make different kinds of choices. But in a situation like this, says the layman me, it would seem like you would prioritize public health and, and in fact, global health, because every further case makes the problem harder. Uh, but for some people and for some leadership, I can see why that at least wouldn't be the initial or the fastest decision, because there are other priorities that leaders have or at least have in their head. Again, I don't think it's excusable that they didn't prioritize public health first or didn't act fast enough, but I can see why they wouldn't. some leaders wouldn't immediately go, okay, drop everything else, let's go ahead and do this, and then somewhat defended their actions by denial or minimizing. But obviously, the situation overwhelmed their initial views, and many have, especially most, I would say, have come to realize, hey, this is actually an issue we need to start tackling.
0: What I find remarkable about that point, Alex, is that you'd think you would give guidance to leaders in other countries, right? When they see, oh, well, the Americans and the Brits and the Chinese have all come around from their initial denial to treating this like a really big problem. Well, the Americans, question mark here. But you're seeing lots and lots of countries initially going from denial to needing to do a full-scale national mobilization. Let's say the Italians, that's a better example. You still have major, large, and significant world powers— that are, are in denial to a degree of the threat posed in their country despite evidence of outbreaks, right? Despite reasons to believe that their countries could be next. Uh, I'm not saying would, will be, or necessarily obviously are going to be, but at least there are serious, serious risks.
2: And if you're looking at this, right, and it's like, okay, well, a lot of these countries seem to have reacted the same way and, you know, denial and and not really taking this seriously – You know, is that just how everyone is dealing with it? And is that normal? Saudi Arabia offers a really interesting counterexample. Iran has well over 2,000 deaths already from the coronavirus. Saudi Arabia just had its second death a couple days ago. In late February, when people knew this was spreading, Saudi Arabia took a, a pretty dramatic step, especially for that country and essentially shut down the country to all pilgrims coming in for religious pilgrimage. If Qom in Iran is a huge area of pilgrimage, so are Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi had just actually launched this new kind of tourist visa um, just a few months prior, and you know was really looking forward to having a big boost to its economy and trying to really beef up its tourism industry um, as part of this broader economic plan. And yet they still decided to make this call to cut off all outside religious pilgrimage for the foreseeable future. And it seems like that has been successful. Their cases are low. They just had only their second death. Um, And so if you compare that directly to Iran, you can see the decision to act early. And I am not someone known to praise the Saudi regime for basically anything. But in this case, you know, as far as we know so far, it seems like they they made the right call in acting early, even if it was painful, you know, economically, they made that call. And so I think that offers a really useful kind of. But, but those
3: contrast. are official numbers, right? There's a good chance Riyadh is lying.
2: Sure. Just like Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any of any of these countries, um, but it's kind of hard to hide thousands and thousands of dead bodies. We saw those. Alex, you had a great piece on the site. Uh, those satellite images of Iran, you know, digging new burial trenches to deal with the the exponential growth of of deaths, um, and Saudi Arabia just hasn't seen anything like that. Um, you know, the numbers may be higher than they're reporting, but the fact is they're not dealing with this kind of massive horrific outbreak like we're seeing in places like Italy or Iran.
0: Yeah, no, and and. The the Saudi example, and there, there are other countries that you can throw in, the East Asian ones that we mentioned earlier. I think there's also been a very strong response in the UAE, uh, Saudi's neighbor in terms of high levels of testing. Uh, Israel hit a lockdown very quickly, and that's just the Middle East and East Asia. Right, There are other countries that one can cite is relatively effective. Germany, for instance, has had a very widespread testing regime. Even though they have a high number of cases, they have a low death rate. We're not and several sure.
2: countries in, in South America uh, shut down their borders and travel before they even had a single case
0: right it's it's not it's just not the case that every country has to automatically go into denial mode. And right. yet you're still seeing in at least three large countries significant amounts of denial about the risk, especially given documented cases in their borders. And here I'm thinking about to varying degrees, Mexico, Brazil, and Japan.
3: Yeah, Mexico's a big example of this, and it, it, of course, frightens me not only for that that great country, but it shares a border with the United States. The shortened version here, which I think is important, is the new president comes in, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who goes by AMLO, and kind of from the beginning, he m- completely minimized... The, the coronavirus threat. In fact, it was like, you've got to be able to hug people. Hugging people is good. Still hug people. He would hold political rallies, still kiss people, you know, on the hands. Put out videos on Facebook of him at restaurants saying, go out and eat. This is all good. It seems bad. Very bad. And of course, that only encouraged people there in Mexico to go out, go to music festivals, rock out to Guns N' Roses in, in, in the capital. That, that continued. Plus, AMLO also came in promising to cut corruption, and one of his ways of doing that was cutting a lot of government spending, one of which was gutting the healthcare sector. And as part of those cuts to the healthcare sector, there are fewer doctors, fewer hospital beds, no tests, basically. Uh, and so between between AMLO minimizing coronavirus threat as it is barely putting out tests at all, not really tracking the spread. The healthcare sector is about to get completely overwhelmed. And AMLO is barely changing course. I mean, there are people in the government who, you know, are put, are putting out some notices of like, hey, you should keep your social distance. And they even have a cartoon, like, superhero called Susana de which is like, you know, keep a safe distance away as a way as like a public relations campaign. But otherwise, it was only this week, really, that the government has put out strict social uh, distancing measures and um, as of like earlier this week, as well, banning non-essential services. So this is an incredibly late response. There are now doctors in Mexico who are saying that the case there is probably going to be like Italy or worse. So this is what happens when you have a leader who comes in, kind of minimizes healthcare,
0: minimizes the coronavirus threat, and acts way too late. And and the the situation in Brazil is strikingly similar in that you have some people in the government, mainly at the state and regional level who are acting responsibly. But the national government is even worse, uh, right, than the Mexican one in this case, and and arguably even worse than the American one. Brazil is uh, there's an excellent article about this by Ishan Thoreau with the Washington Post comparing Brazil to the US that I would encourage you to read. Uh you know, some of the data in there's really striking, right? Like this week there's been about 2000 cases in Brazil as of Monday. It's the largest number of cases anywhere in South America. Yet the day after you know that those numbers came out on Monday, Bolsonaro, the president, gave a speech in which he called the coronavirus a quote-unquote little flu and yelled at governors, if not yelled, certainly criticized governors for imposing lockdowns, right? And those also claimed that he was super athletic, so if he got the coronavirus, it would be fine. He's relatively old, right? And a lot of his entourage got it from traveling to the U.S. early on or brought it to the U.S. It's like, not entirely clear which, which the vector was. I think it was that one. It's just remarkable to me that knowing everything that we know, right, these two leaders who are, uh, by the way, two of the most significant populist leaders on the left and right, respectively, in in the Americas, are both maintaining
2: this particular line. And Japan's kind of a different case, though, right, Jen? Don't want to gloss over really quickly, though. Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, literally, like, his whole entourage got coronavirus. Like, he thought he had it or everyone thought he maybe had it. He thought he didn't. Uh, he got tested. Apparently the first one was positive and the second one was negative. There was lots of confusion about what was going on. His son even said on like social media that his dad had tested positive and then came back and was like, just kidding. It's like, no, he didn't. Oops. But like, this isn't even theoretical for him. Like people that he literally works with every day are all like laid low with coronavirus and he's still just like, eh, hey, it's probably fine. like, yeah, maybe that's been the case, you know, with those people that are around him. Maybe they're all super healthy and just got lucky. Um, but it's just amazing to me that's just the level of of egotism and denial to be like, this isn't a big deal when like half your staff has it and you're literally a world leader looking around the world, seeing, you know, dead bodies everywhere and health systems overwhelmed to so just be like, it's probably fine, we're good. So yeah, I, I just I just didn't want to gloss over how just massively, massively irresponsible, that is. In Japan, they're having a little bit of a different experience, and I think is really useful to look at. So initially, there was a lot of fear because of Japan's location kind of near China, and, you know, in the same area where a lot of these countries were, were getting infected and having outbreaks happen. And they, they kind of took some measures early on. They, they paid attention to it, but then nothing really happened, and they didn't seem to, like, get a lot of of cases and it kind of just went away and everyone was like oh i guess japan doesn't have a problem but the thing is if you actually look closer their testing regime was and still is really 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 strict in terms of not in terms of like making sure everyone gets tested but meaning
0: quite the opposite
2: it's really strict who can even get tested so you have to have had like a fever over 99 point-something degrees for, like, four days in a row to even be considered for testing, which is, like, not, you know, the the criteria of most other places. Um, Even then, you have to meet other criteria. Um, You know, you have to be elderly. And even then, if you meet all the criteria, people are still getting denied tests. And it's not like in the U.S. where people are not being able to have access to testing because there isn't any testing, right, because we didn't have the test. Japan has the capacity and is actively choosing not to use it. Uh, I have a piece uh, from a freelancer that's going to be going up on the site pretty soon, and and a health ministry official literally told a press briefing last week in Japan, just because you have capacity, it doesn't mean we need to use that capacity fully. They're literally just choosing not to do that. And there are a lot of reasons why. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, you know, in the second half of the show. But one thing that's really important to remember is... Japan had the Tokyo Summer Olympics coming up. And just only this week we saw those finally get postponed. But they waited all this time. And part of that is why a lot of people are like, maybe that's why they've been, you know, maybe they're downplaying testing and they're downplaying the numbers. But now, all of a sudden, we're seeing a growing outbreak in Tokyo that's threatening Japan. And what do you know? Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had to come out And today, say, this is a threat, we need to deal with this. But even then, he's still not declaring like a state of emergency, he's still not calling for lockdowns, like they're still not really doing what they should be. It's just, it's just crazy.
0: To give you a sense of how badly the testing restrictions have hampered Japan's ability to identify even the extent of their problem, per capita, Japan has tested fewer people than the United States, the world's probably most notorious testing failure. At this particular point in time. And Japan has the ability to do it. As Jen said, they're just choosing not to because the leadership is, for whatever reason, deciding that it doesn't want to. Now, we're going to take a quick break. And then after the break, we're going to try to think through some of the reasons why so many different leaders of so many different types in so many different governments are exhibiting similar kinds of denial.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back, worldly listeners. We are talking about the coronavirus and uh, the way in which a a number of different political leaders have exhibited similar kinds of denial early on around the world as the virus has come to their countries. We've done like a real survey of different kinds of countries in different places and parts of the world, from the Middle East to South America— to East Asia, to Europe, and, and the question is, wh- what is going on? What are the reasons why leaders around the world are so uninterested in taking this virus seriously until they're absolutely forced into doing so by the virus itself? Right? We, we obviously don't have answers, but I, I think we have a few theories.
3: So the first is one I alluded to earlier on the show, which is economics. I think economics are, are very clearly, if, if not the leading reason, one of the leading reasons, uh, or you know, if not yeah. number one, number two. Basically, any leader you hear that is denying the threat of coronavirus is citing the economy, whether it be Trump saying, look, well, you want to open the, the country up by Easter, which, look, he, even here in Washington, D.C., They're closing businesses beyond that, so that ain't happening. Uh, But either way, like, that's one of the reasons why Trump wants to get moving. Ammo in Mexico. Uh, Mexico's having a massive economic slowdown, and the last thing he wants is to shut down the entire economy and hurt the country even further. Bolsonaro in Brazil, same thing. Japan, as Jen mentioned, with with the Olympics, which brings in a lot of money for a country. So... And these are genuine trade-offs, and these are genuine concerns. If you're the leader of a country, the last thing you want is to see your country slip into uh, an economic slump and a recession. And the reality is, I think, we're all about to face one uh, just by virtue of of this virus. So, you know, that's, I think, a bit moot. Uh, but still, when you are leading a country, it isn't just only public health. You have other concerns to think about. So, again— Uh, I I don't excuse it. Uh, I totally believe this public health concern should come first. But it is not surprising to me that almost every country across the board, every leader at least, has considered the economy has given them a little bit of pause when it's come to their response to coronavirus.
2: Yeah, I mean, in Japan, it wasn't even just the Olympics, which, you know, obviously was a huge issue. But uh, according to Reuters, uh, as of March, economic conditions were being described as severe. Just this week, the government said that the economy was doing its worst than it has in nearly seven years. And that was before, like, you know, the virus became a thing. Like, this is, Japan was already having a severe economic downturn or or economic issues. And so I think that definitely plays a role. So if you factor that in on top of, like, oh, should we cancel or postpone the Olympics, which is, like, something that we're spending, you know, billions of dollars trying to build infrastructure for, and it's supposed to be this huge, like, Coming out party for Japan or like reemergence of like, hey, we're back, everybody. It's obviously a huge factor.
3: I was there, I don't remember time, but it was probably about a year and a half ago. And I can tell you, like, every Japanese official I talked to, regardless of where they were in the government, were like, we are so stoked for these Olympics. We are preparing. This is a big thing for us. And, like, we are and we are so ready. We, we cannot wait to welcome the world. So, like, that's what they were considering years ago, a uh, year and a half, two years ago. Uh, it's not surprising now that, you know, on the precipice of hosting those Olympics, there would be a little bit of pause before, find, you know, postponing it as they have.
0: You know, I find this attitude kind of strange, though, right? Because one thing that uh, a lot of American observers have pointed out when our government's been making similar arguments, right? The cure can't be worse than the disease, et cetera, is that if you have like widespread, well, spread of the coronavirus, you're not going to have a functioning economy, right? People are going to be staying home voluntarily. Businesses are going to shut because they don't want their employees to get sick and die. If tons of people are on sick leave, also businesses can't function, right? The there isn't a choice between uh, an economic downturn from voluntary self isolation and quarantine and you know a healthy economy, but lots of people dying, right? It's not some kind of just direct one to one trade off. It's you have a choice of both an awful economy and lots of people dying. Or an awful economy and fewer people dying, right? And this this is so obvious that even pundits have figured it out, at least some pundits in the U.S. It seems hard for me to believe that all of these people who are in charge of whole countries aren't capable of recognizing in a, in a pure policy sense what the trade-offs are, which I think means that it, the economy itself, right, just concerns about the health of the economy are not a sufficient explanation on its own. I think mean, it has to be married and understood in the context of the way that politicians often tend to calculate and think about their careers and their political standing, which is kind of political short-termism. People in power tend to think, I shouldn't do something that will be seen as unpopular. I shouldn't do things that will get people angry at me. I shouldn't do things that can undermine my narrow base of political support. And while in the long run failing to act on the coronavirus, I believe will end up Doing serious damage to governments that have let it get really bad. Once we start seeing peaks in various countries, which we haven't seen in most of the world, we'll see what the political consequences are. It's too early to say, exactly. But in the short term, I can see why it would feel super unpopular and dangerous to say, okay, every restaurant in the country, you have to close or start doing takeout only. And so if you marry that kind of preoccupation with the economic costs With a sort of political short-termism, I think you can understand why all sorts of different kinds of governments and leaderships are not interested in taking the coronavirus threat seriously.
2: I see it a little bit differently um, in terms of the economic calculation. You know, we're sitting here right now, and I think in particular cases that we talked about in the the later part of the earlier part of the show, um, you know, Mexico, Brazil, and the U.S. right now, I think that's somewhat separate because – We're now in a place where people should know better, right? We know this is a massive outbreak. We're seeing what's happening to countries. This isn't theoretical anymore. But if we're looking at the earlier countries, I think there's a degree of crying wolf where we've seen other outbreaks happen. SARS, MERS, H1N1, right? Zika. And while they were devastating to the communities that they hit, even Ebola, horrific, devastating, but still mostly contained to a specific geographical area. Or, you know, in the case of Zika, it seemed to mostly just affect pregnant women. And those consequences were horrific, but that's still a generally smaller subset of the world's economy and population, right? So if, if you're not a currently pregnant woman, it was like, well, okay, I'm probably fine. And, and still managed to be fairly well-contained. And I think early on, if you are a leader and you are trying to weigh those economic consequences of potentially shutting down entire swaths of the economy in the country, and you're thinking, like, I don't, I don't know, I've seen this before, like it's probably okay. I kind of understand that from a from a human level. I think a lot of people still to this day, despite all we're seeing, still kind of have that. I don't know, I've heard a lot of like scary things. I you know, I remember mad cow disease, like whatever happened with that. Like just this kind of natural, we've been through this before, it's probably going to be okay. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that's that's correct or, or accurate, but I get it. Now, governments and their job is to be able to not just act like that and to be able to take the kind of visionary, bold, like, steps that you need from leaders to do the hard steps and to to look forward and look ahead. Um, we have, you know, people whose jobs are to, to crisis, to game out these crises, to have plans in place. And so, you know, their failure to act early is not quite the same as a person just seeing this. But but I still understand that. And I think it's different, you know, early on to not be, like, immediately shutting down everything, even in Iran's case. I, I think, you know, they deserve all the, the blame, the, the leadership, for failing to act on this. But they also were, like, basically the second outbreak place from, from China uh, that saw, like, the biggest—one of the biggest outbreaks— and even then it was like, oh, God, like it happens really fast. So I still understand like the failure to act that quickly. I think it really did blindside a lot of people in a way that like nobody was expecting it would be as bad as it as it has gotten.
0: Uh, it, it's worth noting, Jen, to, to that point that the countries that reacted most impressively and quickly, uh, the trio of East Asian countries that I mentioned early on. Uh, all of them had recent, that is to say within the past 20 years, experience with one of those uh, diseases that you were talking about becoming a serious problem inside its borders. Right. South Korea, for example, had a really bad problem with MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. 38 people, something like that, died, and it was a huge public health problem there. And so they, through experience with that and other, you know, Singapore and Taiwan also had problems with swine flu and... SARS, which you may remember is another respiratory disease that was a real problem that originated in China. And so all of those countries, which had, with these recent experiences, knew that experts weren't necessarily crying wolf in that way when they talked about diseases. They knew that if that disease gets inside your borders, it can be a serious, serious problem for public health. And so they all acted really swiftly.
2: Saudi Arabia fits that example really well, too, obviously because of MERS, which you mentioned, but also Saudi Arabia. handles Hajj every year, and millions and millions of people come to this very one small city uh, of Mecca every year for the yearly pilgrimage for Hajj. They've been organizing this, you know, for decades, this government, and they're really, really, really good at it. They are really on top of potential outbreaks. They've seen this again and again. And I think, you know, if any country understands what it's like to have you know millions of people during an outbreak come into your country it's probably Saudi Arabia um and i so i think you know their experience with just organizing and running hajj every year really really helped them realize early on okay let's just shut this down and not deal with this because we've seen this before and they have the infrastructure in place for that
0: jen the saudi defender has logged on today
2: literally never on anything else but they are you can ask anybody they are really really good at running hajj uh,
3: I think this point is important, but it does have its limits. Um, for example, Germany does not necessarily yeah. have a lot of experience with this kind of thing. But starting in January, they got a case. They started testing right away. Part of that also has to do with their scientific rules. You know, this was possible. Obviously, in the U.S., this sort of notion of like, oh, I've never seen anything like this. Well, like, yeah, here. As we mentioned, we've seen it elsewhere. Most importantly, the greatest example of like where this, is, this can be true, that if you have experience, you do well, um, somewhat falters is Mexico. Uh, the H1N1 influenza started in Mexico, and what that government did at the time was incredible testing, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. Like they they moved really fast, and while there were deaths, and it did move around the world, it did not become a massive crisis in part because its origination point acted very quickly. Which brings me to sort of another reason why there are these denials is when leaders don't listen to the experts early on. Again, as I mentioned earlier, like, AMLO cut a lot of the healthcare sector. He minimized. There were people in the, his government saying, hey, man, this is a big deal. Let's use that 2009 H1N1 playbook. And he was like, "Let's. it's not a big deal. Again, he prioritized the economy, but there were experts clamoring for him to act. We've seen this everywhere in the world. There are experts in every country saying like, hey, here's the playbook, here's what we need to do. Uh, And in some places they've implemented it and it worked. In other places they've tried to implement it and then realized that they didn't really have the foresight and the planning done in time to do it right. I think the U.S. falls in between a leader who didn't really want to act and like a a lack of good planning. And then there are just those that just immediately said like, no, I don't want to deal with this at all. That's where like a Bolsonaro fits, for example. So the planning sort of, or the experience, I think is an important point. I think it stands true, but it does have its limits. I mean, this is, again, where I'm, I keep harping on, like a leader, this is really comes down to me, For if a leader really wanted to act, they could get their act together.
2: Right, and just to be clear, during H1N1, that was a different government in Mexico. No, exactly, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that, that underscores your point, that a lot of this really does come down to leadership decision-making in a really critical moment and making the right call.
0: Right, and there's, there's also, I think, with... A certain kind of insurgent populist government, there's a unique variable here, which is distrust of, of neutral expertise and the idea that there's a sort of knowledge base that needs to be deferred to under situations of crisis that can't be handled by their trusted inner circle. Right. That is certainly what's going on in the United States and Brazil. It seems to have affected the UK response early on to a certain extent, where um, Johnson's political advisor, Dominic Cummings, played a big role in formulating the herd immunity early on response. Cummings is a sort of big Brexiteer guy, mastermind of the Tory turn towards right-wing populism. It's just there's a generalized sense among people like this that that's the establishment. The scientists are part of the elite that's trying to thwart the will of the people, and they're the ones who are trying to screw over the economy and hurt most people to try to control you and your life through expert dictates. I think that there there is a complex interplay of these different factors that affect each individual country, and we haven't even begun to talk about the specific ways in which authoritarian countries need to repress harmful information for their political legitimacy, and the knee jerk impulse to repress impacts their their decisions on how to respond to this specifically. Right? It's just it, it seems to me that there are, there are all of these different things floating around, but it seems that in Specific countries, they combine in a particular way to produce predictably bad responses. And because there's so many different factors that militate towards denial, you're seeing this in country after country after country.
2: Yeah, I think the media, you know, plays a role, or rather, uh, you know, perceptions of the media, I should say, in in countries. And, you know, obviously we all three work in the media, so slightly biased. Um, but you know, while I do think there's obviously problems in, in every country's media, United States media. On balance, pretty good. Uh, and I know you know most of the people that in our newsroom and in you know all the mainstream, straightforward media are doing their best to literally just report the most accurate facts and not get people killed. Um, but if you live in a country where distrust of the media is high for whatever reason, because it's ginned up by populist governments, or because it you know in the case in China it literally is the government's media arms. That feeds into this distrust of what you're hearing. And I think, you know, we're seeing that, of course, in the United States where, you know, people are are not trusting, you know, Trump is even calling it fake news. Some of the stories that are criticizing him. And, you know, you see it again in, in authoritarian countries, you see it in Democracies, I think that the perceptions of the media are really critical in a time of crisis um, because you need to have like the truth being out there, uh, not in an x file sense, but you really have to have people trusting both their government and their media because you need at least one of the two to be telling the truth. And you'd hope that both are, but the media's job is to make sure that the truth gets out there regardless of what the government is saying, right? Um, And here you have Mixed messages coming from the government, so the media's job is to try to give the straight answers, but so many people distrust the media, you know, for various reasons, that it's, it's really scary and it's really difficult to get entire swaths of the population to pay attention and take this seriously if the media that they consume is telling them it's not a problem.
0: So I think that's where we're going to leave you on this note of uh, complexity and uncertainty, which I think a lot of us are feeling in the middle of this coronavirus outbreak. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for helping us muddle through our very difficult home studio situation. I want to thank my dog, Chase, for interrupting our broadcast at one point to try to skitter into my recording studio and lie down in his bed. I want to thank you, the listeners, and encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG podcast and an entrepreneur myself.